today. As uh, we start the class today, um, this could be kind of interesting one, I think. Um, we're talking about that we might be doing a little bit lighter. Um, not so much. Um, oh, I, I will tell you, I had an interesting experience um, in Gospel Doctrine yesterday. Uh, I was asked to read a, an extended passage uh, out of uh, 1 Thessalonians, no, out of Philippians. Yeah. So, so I pulled out my handy-dandy Wayment version and read that, and people were coming up out of wow, <laughs> yeah, that's good stuff. So uh, I would have this on hand. Uh, we're going to use this, by the way, we're going to be looking at the scriptures uh, a bit today. Um, now, ahead of that, let me, just, let, let me just suggest, let me start with this. Um, one of the things that uh, in trying to capture history... Uh, so much of history and how we see history is in the eyes of the artists and the filmmakers that produce art and movies and tell stories uh, about an event. And we see it through their eyes. So I went through and just picked out a lot of one on the, uh, the baptism of Christ. And I want you to look at some are very ancient and some are more recent. Um, when you look at some of these, uh, some of these different portrayals of the baptism of Christ, what do you see? What emotion does it is it there to kind of evoke? Maybe different from some of the others. The one in the bottom left, it, he is not being immersed; he's being sprinkled. No, so so the, the, this one with John the Baptist standing there and sprinkling Jesus on there. You can see this is kind of coming out of a Catholic setting. Uh, now, getting past the historical accuracy of this, though, what's the feeling that you get from that? Calm. Kind of calm, kind of a devotional kind of thing. That he, okay, uh, as opposed to this one with Jesus standing there and arms out raised and the light coming in. That what's that one? That one's awesome. Action. And there's action. You can see the water is still kind of coming up. Okay. And what's the, what's the emotion? Triumph. Yeah. So much love. You, you get all of that. And then this one up here where we've got John and Jesus hugging, standing in the water and hugging. What's the emotion that goes with that? Love. love joy. Gratitude. Yeah. And, and, and that's, what, that's why I'm saying that a lot of times with these, artists uh, aren't necessarily looking for historical accuracy. In fact, uh, some people like Anthony Sweat will tell you that as he's painting things, they're not trying for accuracy. They're trying for an emotion. They're trying to set something in here. Now, if they're, if they're commissioned to do something accurately, they will do it accurately. But if, it's, if they're trying to evoke something now it's going to become more artistic okay um, so if you have that in your in your backdrop um, what we're going to talk about today uh, is is almost it's it's the way two gospel writers looked at the ministry of Jesus they're going to use the exact same event in history the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple. 
but I'm going to show you two different views based on what they're trying to accomplish in their writings. One is Mark and the other is John. Mark and John are going to see the same events from different perspectives with different ends in mind. And the, tri and the triumphal entry is their palette, if you will. It's their object that they're going to use. Okay. So, let me start for just a little bit of a second. Uh, the Gospel of John. We have talked about Mark repeatedly. The fact that, that uh, Mark was originally done as a play. It was, it was performance art. Uh, it was the first gospel that was out there. Uh, even though it's, it's around for a couple of decades, uh, it doesn't actually get written down until about 60 AD. But for decades, it is, it's, a, it's a play. And we've talked about, and you're going to see some of that today, how he does that. Okay? Now, uh, Mark is to John what Steven Spielberg is to Shakespeare. Okay? You're, gonna, you're looking at Shakespeare, or you're looking at uh, Spielberg in Mark. It's dramatic. There's stories. It gives you things that you can, that in a play setting would, would attract people's attention. When you get to John, you're getting to Shakespeare. It's a much higher level of thinking, very careful writing, and they're, they're messages that are more deeply embedded that wouldn't do well in a play setting, but for deep study, uh, it's incredibly important. Uh, so, so, for instance, the, in, the, in scholarly terms, what they tend to say is, Mark has the lowest Christology. The lo Mark has the lowest Christology. In other words, Jesus is more real, and he's getting dirty, and he's with everybody, and he's taking care of people. In the book of John, John is the highest Christology, meaning Jesus was God. Period. We look in the other Gospels, and the Gospels start with the Nativity in Bethlehem or with Zacharias. Okay? You look at the book of John, what's the, how does the book of John start? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In other words, the preexistence. He's going to start with, I want you to know that Jesus was God. And, he, and now, now he's going to walk it all the way through. Now, why, why is he doing this? Well, one of the things that we know about the Gospel of John, this, there it is, um, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have a lot of similar material. That's why we think they were looking at each other and drawing off of the same things. Uh, the Gospel of John is like 90% original to John. You don't find it anywhere else. Now, we think it was written about 90 A.D., about 60 years after the Savior's death. But that also means then that by the time he writes, the temple and Jerusalem have been destroyed. They were destroyed about 70 A.D. He's writing about 20 years later. So the people that are reading the book of John and while he's writing uh, have in their rearview mirror the fact that the temple's gone and Jerusalem is destroyed. 
So it's a and so mostly because the the dysphoria, the scattering of Israel has happened. They're really writing to people in Corinth and Ephesus and Alexandria in the scattering in Babylon. That's where that's where they might come across the Gospel of John. Okay. By the way, when we're looking at art and uh, historical accuracy, uh, is this accurate? <laughs> you just you got this medieval. Well, John's going to sit down and and pen a, a bound book. <laughs> as opposed to there's a scroll and he's going to be writing in a scroll uh, but I, I think that's kind of fun that just gives you an idea okay so now Israel has been scattered all over the place Paul and Peter have preached written and died before John ever starts writing Okay, um, in the in the whole New Testament, what's the first? If we're going to take it historically, um, what is, what's the first book written in the New Testament? Anybody know? Thessalonians. Thessalonians. Yep, Thessalonians is the first is the first book. Okay, and then the books of Paul, all the way through, and then after Paul is completely done written, written done written, <laughs> half done written. He'd been writing. <laughs> then comes Mark. Except for the book, except for Revelations. Okay. So, so this has all happened before as this gospel is landing. So, let me ask you this. If you're if you are a Jew in the dysphoria, you're sitting somewhere in the Mediterranean, and the temple has been destroyed and the Jews scattered and Rome is still in charge. What is it that, that as a Jew or potential Christian convert, what is it that you would like to know? When is he coming back? Okay, before we even get to the Savior. Just as a Jew. Because the, the, he's going to become really important here. But just as if you're not Jew and you're not even caring about Christianity, and what would what do you need to know after the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem? When will there be a temple? When will there be a temple? And why would you want? Why would you be concerned about the temple? Because that's where that's where God is. God is there, and if God is in the temple, then. When Joseph Smith walked into the grove, what did he want to know? Not what church to join. He wanted to know what? Huh? He wanted to know his standing. What was my standing? In other words, how do I be saved? How can I be saved? Which of all these churches has salvation? Is it baptism or not? Is it just believe as it works? You know, do I need to go get communion? Do I need to just believe? Which of all the, where do I find salvation so that my, I can be right with God? If you are a Jew in the, in the second temple period, how do your sins get remitted? At the temple. By sacrifice. On what day? Yom Kippur. The day of atonement. Okay. 
So that's how salvation, that's how you get clean. That's how the, the, the nation is cleansed. What happens if there's no temple? Well, we're lost, right? I'm sorry, I think I have to go back and say, they're Right, we thought keeping Torah, keeping the law should have protected us from, and certainly for the zealots, and like the, the, the Essenes at Qumran, and the zealots in the temple. I mean, they were like, they, they, foment, they started the war. They started the war with the Romans. Because that would be the moment that the Romans would come, Caesar would send his legions, and in would come God, and, and, and the, the eternal King David would show up and vanquish all the foes. They started the war. They burned the foodstuffs. <laughs> the zealots in the temple burned the foodstuffs to, to force God to come rescue them, and then they get crucified. Didn't work. So if you're a Jew... And you're saying, how do we get clean? How do we get cleansed? Where is where's salvation? There's no temple. There's no Jerusalem. The holy city's gone. You can't even go there. So if you in this in this period of time, about 90 AD, where are we going to go for salvation? Is ends up being kind of this big question. Okay? Of with no temple, how do we do this? And then, as the Christians are out preaching, they're, gonna, they're bringing the Gospel of John here. The idea is, uh, who was Jesus really? Who, who was he? Wow, okay. Well, that's... Now, by the way, uh, in, in, in uh, Judaism today, how did they solve this problem with no temple? How did salvation come? Uh, through the Torah. Yeah, through the Torah. Double down on the law, double down on the Torah, and trust the rabbis. So this is where we really get the rabbinical Judaism, where they're gonna. There's no temple, but there are rabbis, and and we have we don't have a temple, but there's a Torah. So we'll study that, and that will save us. Hang on to that idea where they don't believe it. You're right, and John's going to go after that. Okay, um, now. John is going... So, here's the question. He, before he starts writing, here's the question. Without a temple, how do you get saved? And who is Jesus? And the Gospel of John answers that deeply. So what does the Torah tell them about their sins and being forgiven and all the things that the temple ah. do? Yeah, she, she's saying, so, so what, does the, what does the Torah tell them about, about their sins? Well, they have to, the rabbis have to start interpreting it differently and say, and you're going to see elements of this in just a second, where they're going to start to say, well, if you can't get to the temple, think about those in Babylon that maybe never go, or those that are in Alexandria that never go, they're already having to turn it a little bit that says, can we be saved without ever going to the temple? It's nice that there's a high priest in Jerusalem that is... On, on Yom Kippur is going to save our sins but if that's gone then there's got to be something that the Torah saves us and now we're going to start believing more in Torah even now still don't they have councils to do that I mean they go through the processes of what does this actually mean and how and yes so they say well I think it means this right so which rabbi are you going to listen to exactly 
uh, Rabbi Hillel, Rabbi Akiva, you know. And so today it's like, based on that, we will have a discussion and it becomes a very legalistic thing, but that's how you find that you're saved, okay? If you're more reformed Judaism, you're going, well, salvation comes by taking care of the poor and kind of being a, kind of this more uh, social justice kind of thing. It, it can get changed, okay? So here's where we're going with the Gospel of John. Now, both John, with this focus, and Mark, with his theatrical circus, circus, <laughs> focus, Mark was a really good screenwriter. He was. Um, are gonna, watch how they, they treat two different episodes in the scriptures leading up to the triumphal entry. Uh, let's start with the anointings. Prior to the triumphal entry, Jesus is going to be anointed. Uh, some gospels say once. Uh, some, go some gospels say twice. Uh, most of the BYU scholars I've been checking with believe that he was anointed twice. So I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to trust Eric Huntsman on this one. So let me ask you this. Who in ancient Israel, Israel was anointed with oil? Kings. Kings and? Priests. High priests. Yep. So priests and kings. Okay. What you're going to get in the scriptures is, an anoint, is a priestly anointing and a kingly anointing. It's kind of fun. Okay? So there are three stories of Jesus kind of being cleansed and washed and anointed. Uh, the first one uh, is the sinful woman in Galilee where, she's, where she is washing him and bathing his feet with her tears and washing it with her hair, drying it with her hair, right? Now, as this seems to have happened multiple times because as we get close to the to uh, Holy Week, we get this la this stretch here. Uh, what we're going to get is there's a woman in, in the house of Simon the leper who's going to anoint him with oil, with uh, uh, spikenard, and then we're going to get Mary of Bethany. So let, let's take these, and I, I want to first of all do it with Mark. Let's look through Mark's eyes. So we get this. He's in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, reclining to eat. And a woman came to him and had an alabaster jar of ointment, pure nard, spikenard, uh, which was very expensive and having broken the alabaster jar, because it stays sealed, uh, because it's coming in from the east, uh, she poured it on his head. Now remember, there is some to do with uh, Thomas saying, "Well, you don't, you know, don't waste that here. We could spend that on the poor." Uh, John is going to answer that and saying he just wanted the money. <laughs> he wanted it in his bag because he was going to he was going to steal it. Judas. Now, what did I say, Thomas? Judas. Thank you. <laughs> I'm glad you guys keep me on track. Okay, now. Jesus' response is, she has done what she could. She anointed my body in preparation for my burial. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is declared in all the world, 
what she has done will be told in memory of her. Now, picture this in a theater setting. And let's say, let's say you are hearing the Gospel of Mark maybe in a Roman amphitheater or something like that or somebody's house. And they're reading to you theatrically the book of Mark. Couldn't you see this moment where they would say, uh, and Jesus said, she has done what she could, anointing my, and maybe there's someone playing Jesus. They're kind of going back and forth. She has done whatever she could for my burial. Truly I say to you, you wherever this story is told right now in this, in this setting, in this telling, wherever this story is told, in all the world, what she has done will be in memory of her. Who will know? We will know. Those in the class, those in the theater, those in the house. You will know that she did this. You become witnesses. Is that kind of cool? Now, in a theatrical setting, though, the very next line in this play whether they would shift to another scene or whether they would just keep on going. Probably another scene. Maybe at the other end of the stage. This one here, this one here. The very next line is this. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to deliver him to them. When they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he thought how he could deliver him at the right time. That is the two stories right alongside each other. So if you're sitting in the class, you're sitting in the theater, you're sit what are you hearing? What will you do? Will you remember him or will you deliver him up to the wicked? What will you do? Okay? Kind of cool. And and you get this theatrical flair that comes with that. And it doesn't make sense when you're just reading it because there's a, in, in our King James Version, there's a chapter heading right here and you might think that they're two separate things. But in the play, they're being read together. You read it, you hear it. It's okay. Now, there is um, this anointing. He, it is interesting. We're knowing that uh, where's he anointed in this case? on his head okay shortly after this moment uh, he will then the next day he will implement the sacrament this is the day before the Passover Seder and he will turn the Passover into the sacrament the, only the high priest can change the liturgy <laughs> only the high priest can change how we the ordinance and it's interesting that in this moment we have a moment where he's being anointed and then he will the next day he will make this major change okay is that, is that okay mm -hmm. just interesting how this the, the timing on this uh, and I won't even get into the fact that it's being done by a woman which I think is very cool anyway alright so how would John treat the same event with his with, I've got to explain who he is and what's going on here. Um, 
John is going to is going to talk about not so much he will leave out the one with the woman with Simon the leper even though sometimes some people have felt this is the same there's a reason here that we think this is different this is on if, if Palm Sunday is the Sunday when he's going to walk in, this is the Saturday before. This is the day before Palm Sunday. So, okay, kind of the Sabbath meal. John 12. And Jesus, six days before Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus raised from the dead. And Mary took a pound of costly ointment of, again, pure spikenard, she's going to repeat it, and anointed Jesus' feet. This time the feet are going to be anointed. And wiped his feet with her hair. Okay? He's anointing the feet. What, where do those feet go the next day? Jerusalem. Jerusalem the, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Okay? So that's why we begin to think these are two separate instances because we have one of the feet, one of the head, and they have two different purposes. Okay? Make sense? Okay? All right. So wiped feet. Uh, now. Then there's an interesting little, the next line in here, I think ha, it, it does two things. It gives you a sense that somebody that was actually there would have recorded it because it's a little detail that it would take somebody that was there and it also has echoes of the temple and John has woven this in beautifully okay the next line is and the house was filled with the aroma of the ointment so I've been curious though like a whole bottle of ointment or pounds worth. I mean, yeah. Upwards of a year and a half of. It is money. super expensive. Would there not have been enough to maybe anoint? And if it's in preparation for burial, would you have not anointed sort of throughout the whole body? Yeah, they're only pointing out the head or, or the, the feet this time. But you're right. I think they would have anointed more. Um, and, and so you get this sweet smell. And also, think about in the, in the temple in Jerusalem, they would take the ashes from the burnt offering, and then they would take it into the holy place, and they would take that, those ashes and mix it with what? Incense. So they would mix it together, and then they would burn it on the altar of incense, and the aroma, the smell of that would fill the holy place, and it's like the sweet smell of, of prayer and gratitude to God. So there's a smoke, but there's also an aroma. And this is hearkening a little bit. We're kind of making this almost a temple moment. Because there is the smell of the ointment in the house. Which is, which is really kind of cool. Okay? Alright. And again, so that we have this, the second anointing here. And, and this is also being done uh, by a woman. Kind of cool. All right. All right. So. Now. So, so we have these events. That, that's how Mark did it. That's how John did it. Now let's, let's move to the second one. And now you see it all kind of come together. And we'll kind of dig through the scriptures just a little bit. Because there's an, an interesting way that John has handled this. Um. 
Here's the, this is a uh, picture of the old, picture, a drawing of the old city here. Here's the Kidron Valley to the east. There are the hills. To the east of that is the Mount of Olives over here. And then a little farther north up here is Mount Scopus where the, the uh, BYU Jerusalem Center is today up here. And then farther down here is Mount So Beth, they're coming down out of Bethany. Uh, and then they're going to get to this point. Now, there is a question here about through which gate did Jesus enter at the triumphal entry. Okay? Uh, when, when we went, and certainly a lot of tour guides uh, will tend to say that they come down out of Bethany and there are two paths. And, and they came right up here, which is like near the beautiful gate. It's now kind of stoned over, but it's, and it's high up there. You can see it. Uh, they said, this is the place. Our guide did this. This is the gate where Jesus came during the triumphal entry. Because he comes right in here. And then here's Solomon's porch, where we know that Jesus cleaned out the, the uh, money changers. They were operating inside Solomon's porch. It was a series of colonnades, two-story colonnades, and that's where he, so he kind of comes right in, and then he's going to kind of go to work, but he's going to do that the next day. doesn't do that this day, but this is kind of what they're, they're saying. Okay. Now, again, my research suggests that we don't know, but I want to give you a second alternative, one that's favored uh, by a number of prominent scholars, uh, LDS scholars, that also makes sense. There was a second gate getting you to this area here. This is the beautiful gate area right here. If you go all the way around to the top of the temple and you come in right here at the top, there was a second gate called the sheep gate. The sheep gate is where they brought in the sacrificial lambs, which ought to already spark some interest in you. Okay? Uh, it also brings us past the, the pool of Bethsaida, where Jesus had healed the blind man on the Sabbath uh, earlier in his ministry. But you get the sheep gate that comes in right here. Okay? And the sheep gate back then would have looked kind of like that. Okay? Up on the north... So you see this, the wall, and then there's a, a small door where they're going to bring in the sheep directly into the sacrificial area of the temple. Now, interestingly enough, uh, when Jerusalem was, the temple was destroyed, uh, and finally when the Ottomans, the Turkish Ottomans came in and occupied Jerusalem, uh, the Solomon wasn't real excited about having a sheep gate into his city. So what he did is that he changed it to the Lion's Gate. Okay? So uh, here's a picture of the Lion's Gate. Uh, uh, our group coming through here. And if you look, you can see what was the Sheep's Gate, the very small little entrance in here. And yet, over the overlaid across the top are the are the lions, and there are five lions here. Uh, and he built it up in a in a great sort of way so that you enter 
uh, the Lion's Gate. Uh, if you'll notice right above the Lion's Gate sign, this is where you're going to come here. It's on the Jericho Road, coming up from Jericho. And then also it leads directly to the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, the Dome of the Rock, because that's the entrance that goes right in there. Uh, in my mind, I am a lot more persuaded to believe that what would be most likely is that as Jesus came to that fork in the road and we could either go up the beautiful gate straight into Solomon's temple or especially this triumphal entry where he isn't going to get he'll cleanse the temple the next day he's actually going to walk into the temple look around and go home the cleansing will come the next day I think on the triumphal entry as he comes down here I think he deliberately has them take the donkey make a right hand turn come around the corner of the temple and come right through the sheep's gate uh, entering in with the other sacrificial lambs. Yeah? You mean Herod's temple, right? Uh, Am I saying Solomon's temple? It must be Monday. <laughs> Thank you. Herod's temple. Yes, this is Herod's temple. It was the storm. It was the storm. Yes. Yes. Okay. So I, I anyway, I, would that make sense? But because of the, the symbolism that's going on and on, and he's making sure that we, that we ultimately uh, get this. Now, let's take a look at this triumphal entry. Um, we look in the book of Mark. I'm trying to remember where I put... Okay. If we look in the book of Mark 11, okay. Um, Mark, Mark 11. Mark uh, tells the story about them uh, uh, finding the colt. Uh, they found a colt, a, a donkey. Uh, they're saying, what are you doing? He told them exactly what Jesus was going to do. They allowed him to go. They brought the colt to Jesus, placed their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many put their clothes down, this is verse 8, many put their clothes along the road while others cut down branches from the fields and placed them along the way. Uh, and then they went out before him and after him and cried out, Hoshana, Hoshana, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, we'll, we'll hit this, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hoshana in the highest. Now, we're going to talk about this a little bit more in just a second with John. But... Uh, without getting too detailed here, there were in the Psalms, there were five Psalms that we know that were used during the processions into the temple at Passover time. Psalms 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. That's more than five. Six. Okay. What, what's, on Monday is five, <laughs> after the storm. <laughs> yes. Okay. This phrase, Hoshana, 
Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord is quoting from Psalms 118. This is a direct quote. 18 or 118. 118. <laughs> Man. <laughs> Thanks, Deb. Section, uh, section. Hold on, let me, let me start over here. Okay. <laughs> okay. What they're doing is quoting directly from Psalms 118. <laughs> okay? Um, and, and if you're, I'm not going to take time to do it, uh, but if you go to Psalms 118, you're going to find that they're going to talk about the coming of King David. He's going to vanquish his foes. He's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. He's going to kill him. <laughs> he will destroy his enemies. They'll all be tossed out. It's like this magnificent, the king has come, the foes are vanquished, Israel has returned, there's a brand new King David who controls the temple and everything. Okay? That is Psalms 118. And it's, it's pretty glorious. Okay? Especially if you look uh, at about the first five or six verses of Psalms 118. And, and as they're putting him on this donkey, and they're riding him in through the sheep's gate, which ought to be a clue to them, but it isn't yet. John will tell us that. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Hoshana, the coming kingdom of our father David. Meaning this will be like David. What, it, what was unique to David that it wasn't to anybody else? He united, he united the tribes. Yeah, he brought them all together. And not only that... He beat every other army out there. This was this, under Saul, David, and Solomon, we get this Camelot of the kings in Jerusalem where nobody rules them. And that's what they're looking for again. Okay? So these guys in Mark, picture that as a play. Picture them. He's riding in on the stage and, and people are cheering and they might even get people in the crowd to write, you know, and we're quoting from Psalms 118. There's this great, cool moment. Okay, so that's, that's Mark 11, and the king has returned. So when, when, they're start, when they pull out the palm fronds, uh, and they're laying those on the ground, um, anybody know when the last time was that they did this for a king? It's when the Maccabees, back in 164 B.C., had conquered the Greeks, and Judas the Hammer... Judas Maccabee is coming into Jerusalem to reclaim it for Jews, and they and they broke out the the palm leaves and they and they shouted Hosanna, Hosanna. They are re, they are repeating what they did with the Maccabees when the last time they threw off a foreign power. Okay, now. I'm not sure how many of the Roman... The, the thing is about the Sheep Gate, right next to the Sheep Gate is the, is the citadel. It's, it's, the main, it's the main Roman garrison that would be looking down on the Sheep Gate uh, from there. And I'm not sure they would be really excited to hear, here comes this king. And he's coming, and they are... Now, whether they know that... They probably don't know the traditions, but there are certainly Jews that could tell them about that. That's not a really great moment. I think it's one of the reasons why Jesus comes in. He looks around. He, know, he can see what he needs to take care of. He will do that tomorrow. That would have been incredibly threatening to the Romans 
watching this whole procession. Okay. I also think, I mean, even at that time, these were the, a few Jews doing this. There were not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people bringing the king back in. Hold on. Hold on to that idea. Right. It's bigger than you think. Okay. You were reading Mark. We should read John. Because John is going to give you a whole different perspective. And it's a much more nuanced, layered perspective that gives you a more powerful idea what was being accomplished here with a triumphal entry. Because I thought the same thing until I really kind of started studying this. Okay, so that said, let's look at... Um, As it turns out, John is going to do an interesting thing. And, and again, I, I hesitate to make this too complicated, but, but I need you to see this. And that is that John, with, hold on, with Mark, with Mark, we have certain characters. We have Jesus, we have Mary, we got Lazarus, we got the apostles, you know, we got these characters, okay? John is going to introduce another character into his narrative. And this narrative and this new character is called the crowd. The crowd and they're going to operate almost as one. They're going to talk to Jesus back and forth. They're going to have interaction with him and I need you to see what role the crowd plays in this whole triumphal entry. It starts early. Who was the crowd? Well, if we go to the book of John, and we're going to go to... Um, um, start with 11. 11 talks about the death of Lazarus. You remember? And, they're, and they are hi hiding up in Bethany over the river. Uh, and they decide that they're going to go. And remember, Thomas steps up and says, if you go, you're gonna, they're going to stone you, and they're going to try and kill you. And Jesus says, I'm going anyway to our friend Lazarus. And he says, Thomas says, if, if you're going to go, we will go with you, and we will die with you. It's, it's Thomas's greatest moment. Okay? Right, now, verse 17. When Jesus came and found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about 15 stadia away, about 20 minutes. Many Jews, this is the first time you see the crowd, many Jews came to Mary and Martha to console her, them. I'm going to use Mary and Martha. I don't want to get into the Mary Martha thing on this one because we'll lose our focus. So many Jews came to Mary and Martha to console them about her brother. So who? this crowd is originally who? They're mourners. They're coming to mourn. If, if Mary and Martha and Lazarus have a home up in, in the Mount of Olives, that, they're wealthy. They, they are prominent. Not everybody gets to have a house up on top of Mount, the Mount Olives overlooking this, say, the sacred city. So they're well known. They're well loved. And, the, and, the, and there's a, this large group of people who come to mourn with Mary and Martha. Okay? Many Jews came to console them. Okay? Now, 
I'm going to jump ahead here because I, I want to just quickly point out kind of the places the crowd shows up because I want you to see how it weaves its way in. Okay? Um, so remember, Jesus hasn't yet entered. He's still in. He, he's still coming. Verse 31. And when the Jews, the same group, who were with her, Mary, in the house, were consoling her, they saw that Mary arose quickly and left, and they followed her, thinking that she went to the tomb to mourn. Well, if Mary's going to the tomb, what are we going to do? We're going to mourn with her. So you have this large group of Jews, these mourning Jews, who are going to travel with Mary down to the tombs, uh, which very possibly might be uh, in, in the Kidron Valley, where there were some prominent tombs there, still are. They follow her to mourn. Okay? Uh, for verse 33. When Jesus saw her crying, the Jews gathered with her crying. They're, they're mourning. They're crying with her. Okay? The Jews gathered with her crying. Uh, Jesus was troubled and moved in spirit, and he said, Where have you placed him? And the answer comes from the Jews, the crowd. The Jews gathered with her, crying. He was troubled. They said, where, uh, where have you placed him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then said the Jews, this character, this group, then said the Jews, look how he loved him. Some of them said, this is the one who opened the eyes of the blind man. Could he have not made it so that Lazarus did not die? I think Luke had, puts these words in Martha's mouth. John puts them in the crowd. Martha might have been in the crowd, but okay. Some of them. So the next time. Now, by the way, 38. Um, Jesus was again troubled as he came to the tomb. Now, here's a little drop in from John. Uh, one of the things we like about the book side note one of the things that we like about the book of Mormon is that we get these commentaries from from Mormon Mormon is is prone to like give you a story and then do what and thus we see and thus we see Mormons dropping those in there from time to time and you go okay the editor is saying I want to point something out to you and thus you see reader this okay well, John, more than any of the others, is the commentator, and he will drop stuff in to get your attention. And remember, he's writing to Jews and Christians and Greeks long after, 60 years after the events of the Savior. But look at what he drops in here in verse 38. When Jesus was again troubled as he came to the tomb, it was a cave, and a stone was placed in front of it. What did he just do? He just paralleled the Savior. Yes. There is a foreshadowing. The Savior is standing there outside a tomb with a stone, and, and Jesus is going to say, Remove the stone. Wait, don't we get this story? And for people that for 60 years have been hearing about. Jesus resurrected, they know caves. They know stones that are rolled away. This is a familiar story. And he just tied Jesus' death to Lazarus' death as a foreshadowing. 
and it's really subtle, but man, it's there. And, and he, it's a cave, and a stone was placed in front of it. And those readers would have picked up on that. Verse 41, then they, this is the crowd again, then they removed the stone. And then look what happens here. Uh, this is 41. Jesus uh, lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I am glad that you have heard me. I, know, I knew that you were always, that you always hear me, but because of what? The crowd, I said this that they, the crowd, might believe that you sent me. Wow. Now, by the way, he will repeat this phrase in just a second. This, this gets repeated. But he's going to say, I'm going to say this because I need the crowd to hear that I'm doing this. What I'm about to do with Lazarus has your divine approval. And I want the crowd to know this. Yeah. In this instance, he commands that the tomb be open from the outside. Yeah. And there are helpers who do that for him. And then he approaches the Father. And then in the next instance where it's him, he commands that the tomb be open, but he's commanding from the inside. And there are still heavenly helpers who remove that form. And then he goes to the And he sends to the Father. Absolutely. Nicely done. The parallels here are wonderful, if you'll see them. And John, again, John is telling this story to a group of people who have heard this story. And they're going to now tie this in. But this crowd becomes really kind of important. So, um, And then after this, he says with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. There are some apocryphal writings, by the way, that say that this is exactly what happened with Jesus. That... that uh, in fact, I read one. I, I don't remember who it was. I think Hugh Nibley quoted it. This said, Michael was there. And Michael commanded to Jesus, come forth. And he comes forth. Kind of thing. Kind of cool. Don't know. But anyway. All right. So. So he comes forth. Now. 45. Then. Many of the Jews, the crowd, who came to Mary when they saw what was done, believed in him. Now, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So there were spies in the group. They're trying to track when Jesus comes back into town. So they're there. But many of the Jews, so we get this group of believers that not just came, they came to mourn with Mary. They go with her to the tomb. And what do they watch? The raising of the dead, of somebody who's been dead for four years, four days. And they're going, wow! And, and many of them believe. And th this is the core group, by the way, that will be the triumphal entry. Watch what they do with this. Okay? The crowd. Okay? Uh, so, and, and then they have this discussion. Uh, 54, Jesus no longer walked openly among the crowd, the Jews, but went from another place and he goes up to Ephraim. Now, Chapter 12, we get what we do, we're just talking about. Here's the anointing in the house of, uh, in Bethany. Now, verse 9 of chapter 12. We're almost through this. When the large crowd from Judea learned that he was there, they came, John says, uh, 
they came not because of Jesus only, but so that they might see Lazarus, who he raised from the dead. So they're trying, they're there. If Jesus has come back and, and they're about to enter and Lazarus is going to be there, they want to see Lazarus as well. Um, and so in 12, the next day, the next day after the, uh, all of this, a large crowd came to the feast and they heard Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now they take palm fronds to meet him and they cry out, Psalm 118, Hoshana, Hoshana, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Now, why would this group, particularly in the triumphal entry, believe that this might be King David? Or at least the second coming of King David? By, by being there as witnesses for Lazarus, Raising, what do they now know about this man? He could be King David. He could be King David. Alive. He has power over death. Interesting. How do you defeat a man, a king, who has power over death? That's that's amazing. You could kill his army, and he could raise him back up again. Wasn't there a tradition that a prophet could raise someone up to three days, but it took the Messiah and God to raise someone? Yeah. Yeah, he waited four days to make sure. That's right, it's subtle, right? Because he's not just a prophet. Right, he is the king. And again, if you're going back to Psalm 118, this Messiah, this king will vanquish all of his foes. And, and, hold, and, and I'll show you another reason why it is that they believe that, because there also there's a quote from Isaiah that is also thrown in here. Okay, hold on. Um, 17. The crowd that was with him continually bore witness. The crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb. This same group is, is, is it's like the, the, uh, the core group, maybe of the church even flourishing, um, the crowd that was with him bore witness, the one that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead. And John says, verse 18, this is why the crowd went to meet him because they had heard or saw that he had performed a miracle. And the Pharisees' response is, uh, wow, the world's gone after him. <laughs> this, is, this is getting bad. Okay? Now, then we, get, then we get this little piece here. 20. They're Greeks that came up to the, the feast to worship. Okay, they were coming. They were Jews, but they were coming from Greece. So they're probably from Alexandria or Ephesus or something like that. Okay. They come to Philip. Uh, they want to see Jesus. Philip says, tells Andrew. Uh, uh, Jesus is going to talk to them. And then look at what happens in verse 27. And it's going to be a repeat of what happened only more at the tomb of Lazarus. 27. Now, and he's going to pray. He's praying in the midst of the crowd. My soul is troubled, and what might I say? Father, save me from this hour. Wow. 
Where, where do we hear this in Luke and Matthew? Gethsemane. In Gethsemane. John, who doesn't write about Gethsemane, by the way, John puts it in his mouth now. As if the foreshadowing and the foreboding of what what's about to happen, Jesus says, Father, save me from this hour, but for this reason I came to this hour. 28, Father, glorify your name. Then look what happens. And I don't know that we necessarily, this is something, unless you read John, you don't tie this to the triumphal entry. But it's here in John. Then came a voice from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So the crowd who, that was standing there, that, that's why I say this group here, was standing there, heard it, and said it was thunder. But others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, just like he did at the raising of Lazarus, this voice was for you, not for me. You're going to get a sign. You have heard God speak from the heavens. That I am who he says I am. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be thrown out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to me. And then John throws in, he said this signifying by what death he would die. I am lifted up to the earth. Meaning, in their mind, they, I don't know if they necessarily dreamt crucifixion, but certainly death. When I die, I will bring people with me. Okay? Now, <laughs> 34, this character, the crowd. Wait, what? The crowd says, no, wait, wait. We heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. Now, this is interesting because what they're calling the law is actually Psalms 118 and Isaiah 7. They're, they're now pulling in the scriptures as part of the law. Okay. We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How do you say the Son of Man will be lifted up? This Christ that's coming will never be gone. Will stay. It will be permanent. Will vanquish the foes and won't leave. What does Isaiah 7 say? For unto us a child is born. For unto us a child is given. And what? The government shall be upon his shoulders. And, and his name shall be called Wonderful. Counselor. The what? The, the, my God, the everlasting Father. The everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. In other words, when this Messiah comes, it will be everlasting, and, and the, like the millennium has come, the, the, he's vanquished the foes, Israel has finally stepped up and becomes its rightful 
uh, portal to the rest of the world. This king has come. Yeah, and they believed it was about to happen, and it could be happening right now. This Lazarus raising power over death Messiah. And it's going to happen right now. Okay? Jesus said to them, Does does somebody have uh, Psalms 118? Can somebody pull up Psalms 118 really fast? You got someone? Um, Sister Sheila, I think it's the very last line of, of Psalms 118 says what? Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Uh, maybe it's the verse before that. It's the one that talks about light. Am I missing it? Yeah, it should be 118. Oh. God is the Lord, which hath showed us light. Find the sacrifice of cords, even unto the horns of the altar. Okay, yes. So, God, and so Jesus is going to say to the crowd, the light, from Psalm 118, the light is with you still a little longer. Walk while you are in the light, so when the darkness does not take hold of you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, Believe in the light that you may be the children of light. The children of this God who is going to die and be lifted up. And that's different than what they thought. By the way, that's also what they believed in Qumran. Qumran text, uh, I think it's the community scroll, talks about the, the children of light. And they're waiting for the Messiah to come and vanquish all their foes. Okay. Okay, now finally, here's John's response to all this. Jesus said these things he left and hid from them. 37, he, he had done so many signs in front of them, yet they, the crowd, did not believe him. And then he's going to go on to say, um, because of Isaiah, uh, they, they had their eyes blinded. Verse 40, uh, they'd hardened their hearts. They might not... And the result was they weren't able to see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn. Finally, it says, that I may heal them. Jesus was wanting to heal them, heal the crowd. They misunderstood, they misunderstood who he was. Okay. Then we get this little caveat from John. 42. Even so, many of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not declare it, that they might not be thrown out of the synagogue. Okay. All right. We plowed through that. Now, why would John, in this setting, spend so much time referencing and bringing back the crowd, this group of Jews? What was, what's the purpose in doing that? If anybody's done any writing, why would, why would you do this? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Well, I can be part of the crowd. Yes. 
somebody else, you know, Mary or John or Lazarus, it, it, I can be included in the practice. Yeah, and, and do you think maybe that's why he didn't give the, a, a name to that person? He just can say there's this group of believers that saw amazing things, heard amazing things, worshipped with him, that we can be part of that. And which way are we going to go with it? And which way are we going to go? Yeah, ultimately, following Mark's direction, are we, going to, are we going to praise him and be remembered for our sacrifice, or will we offer him up to somebody for money, for idolatry? Yeah. It also made me think along that line about the second coming and what things we're misunderstanding or thinking will be one way and will really be another, and how ready we need to be to follow how Christ really is. Yeah, and, and are we going to see him for who he really is and not who we think he is? Yeah. So it, it seems to me that there's two motivators to drive. One is power and one is love. Yeah. And you've got the crowd and on occasion they seem to be driven by love. But then when they see the Savior and he is being humiliated and being tortured and so forth, they, it, it's as if they say, he's not who we thought he was because he's not exhibiting power, and we are looking for a power driver. And so now we're going to turn against him and, and abandon him. And I think in our day, there are some who look to the Lord in love and some who look to the Lord for a power leader. Yeah. Just like there were people in the day. Can you imagine the, the uh, selling job, to use that word, the sales job that had to take place in the place of Paul, for instance, walking around the Roman Empire, and he's going to say, the, the, the temple still stands, and he's saying, uh, no, the, the temple still stands, but the people have become the temple. The, the, the Shekinah, the light, the power, the Holy Ghost has descended on the people. They're here, okay? And they worship. Really? Who do they worship? Jesus of Nazareth. You mean the one that was crucified? Yes. That would be... Um, if we were going to have something similar today we might be all most of Christianity instead of walking around with crosses might be carrying around like an electric chair or, or, or uh, in earlier times medieval times maybe the, maybe the uh, hangman's noose or, or the stocks where somebody would like be in be tortured for days <laughs> And we go, yeah, that's the, that's the guy we're worshiping. This is the God that descended and went through. The, the crucif only, only criminals. Do you know that Roman citizens couldn't be crucified? That, this is for rebels. This is for humility. In fact, they would sometimes, when we get into it, well, they would crucify people in odd ways, you know, in odd positions, just to embarrass them. We're going to talk about the fact that Probably Jesus, when it says that, there's a chance when it says he was crucified on a tree, he may have been crucified on a tree. 
They can put that crossbar on a tree. You just need to be just about just a few feet off the ground, close enough that people could look him in the eyes and taunt him. Yeah. So I, I think of how these people, they were looking for someone to uh, on the side to become, I mean, and conquer their enemies, the Romans. And I, I, I think that yeah, there are probably tribes coming through different coming. At the, at the last, at the second coming? Yeah. Kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Right. So that when he comes in, in great glory and power, we can be received that way and um, we'll accept him in both, as a savior in both ways. As, as he truly was. Remember, we had, there was this moment uh, in, their, in their travels when, when they're walking down the road and Jesus hears uh, two of the apostles arguing. <laughs> Remember? And, and, and they're saying, what are you arguing about? And they're saying, well, we're, we're deciding kind of which one of us will be on the right hand and which one will be on the left. Which, when this kingdom comes, which one of us gets to be the Secretary of State and which one gets to be the Secretary of Defense? <laughs> you know, in other words, the, this powerful thing is about to come. We're going to, these simple little fishermen guys from the Galilee are going to be able to be ruling this thing that's rolling forward. And Jesus is trying to say right up to the Last Supper he's trying to say you don't understand the kingdom that's coming. Yes we will vanquish all of our foes but Rome will still be in charge even when the kingdom is coming forward. And that, that's a hard idea. We are, we're only free when the oppressors are gone. And he's saying, no, the oppressor is actually Satan and sin. And we're going to come step forward, and it's a different kingdom. And he who would be your ruler is the servant of all. They, they had a hard time with that right at the beginning. Yeah? I think about this brother shares also about his analogy, you know, his comment. Do we approach him? What's our motivation? Love? His love or his power? Because I see, even in our own lives, people who have a testimony of Christ, and how do they learn, How do they lose the church? How, how often do we hear that something bad happened? God could have stopped it. He didn't. Yeah. I'm going to lose my faith because this God doesn't do those things. And, and then as I think about my, I've been sitting here thinking about myself, thinking, well, how am I guilty about that? And the times that I have thought... My son, who's always been stalwart, how could he lose his job and be out of work for, for three months? You could have, why aren't you helping him? Why, how could this have happened? And having to, don't blame God, don't, you know, play that emotional game, but you know that God can overcome all, and sometimes he simply doesn't. We, um, sometimes, if we're not careful, we, 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 uh end up worshiping gods of our own making. We have created Jesus in our image of what we think he should do or what he shouldn't have done or he wouldn't do that or he could do this and he should. And, and part of what we're watching here is just the overwhelming sense of, of the Savior trying to say, I need you to turn this whole thing upside down. But he's speaking to a group of people that were bound by 
Mosaic law and performances, and it was about obedience. And he's trying to say this is about love and, and transcending all of that. If you love me, keep my commandments, but first of all, love me. Okay? Yeah. These expectations that these followers had of the Savior, we do that too. <laughs> Uh, with our children, with our spouses, and then we become angry because the expectation of behavior and what we wanted to get out of it is not what we thought it should be. And it's it's sort of like a spiritual maturity that you have to go through to understand. And the Savior was trying to teach that, but it just and then of course you're saying Paul had a horrible had a rough oh, time yeah. because of everything that had happened. But it's a type of our spiritual progression. We have to learn about what our expectations should be and what whether or not they're totally unrealistic. People do it to people who leave the church or see somebody they really admired and then something happens. We shouldn't have put our expectations into Yeah. That. Yeah, and, and we're trying to watch what he's trying to tell us and we and we miss it. We become the crowd. There's a there's a uh, a lot of people today that say, Well my God Yes. God of my own making wouldn't be that way, and um, I've experienced that in my own family. Because their their, their God wouldn't do that. In the church, you know. Yeah. And they made that person, in a sense, a God. Yeah. Yeah, Julie. I think, I think we just get stuck in our own timeline. Like the, the crowd didn't have the big big picture, they were expecting it to happen now and not yeah. not a thing and, and I think about I mean most all of you know I have a terminal cancer. I don't know how much I'm gonna have it. At first at first I used to think, Why well, do you do a miracle and people don't be saying, You need to have faith, you can do a miracle and and uh, I don't remember what it was like finally realized he already did the miracle. I don't have to worry or worry I'm already rejoicing that I'm going to have a clean body. Yeah. I'm sorry, but no. it's just a big picture. We, we miss it if we get stuck in our own little little blinder on view of today. It's, the big picture is so joyous that we can just be happy. I, I yeah, and and begin to understand where the joy and happiness really comes from, and, and enjoying that time with family and and all of that. Yeah. The strange thing is, is that they didn't get it then, and it's taking us two thousand years to kind of get it. Yeah. It's taking us all this time to go through the process. Don't you think that the people, the first people that were reading the Gospel of John, let's say that's 95 AD, that maybe they they joined the church and they've been in the church for a while, and now now as they're reading John, they probably had the same questions that we did, which is how come the Jews didn't get it? What were they What were they missing? We we know, but how come they didn't get it? John saying to them while he was writing the letters, let go of your old ways, let go of the the mosaic laws, let go of yeah. and live the life that you in Christ. Yeah, yeah. So we can look back and see how much they misunderstood about Christ's first coming. How much do we misunderstand about his second coming? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Great question. You're not going to go there? <laughs> not yet. Not yet, yeah. So they're, they're really confused, but there is a core of them who get it. Yeah. And 
begins at about 40 days later after the crucifixion when yep. the day of Pentecost comes, and they become filled with the Spirit. And suddenly things become clear. They gain some clarity, they gain some correction, some motivation. And it's interesting how actively our current church leaders are trying to motivate us to recognize that we have to be susceptible to the Spirit. We have to receive that Spirit. We have to have it with us. Otherwise, we will not get it when it's time to be gotten. Absolutely. Let me, let me finish with this. And it's going to go right along with what, what you just said. Uh, this is uh, John twelve sixteen. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that these things had been done to him. That's why we're studying this. Yeah. That was John 12, uh, 16. That even for those disciples, the crowd missed a lot of those things right when they were watching it. Didn't get it. Uh, but it was only later when they saw the whole picture that then they understood that they had been taught. And, they, and then they remembered. Uh, I was just going to ask about what the writing was that he was just talking about. But then I thought, that's Isaiah and the Old Testament, all the prophets. It is. And he's just quoted Isaiah. So, so exactly right. So, um, again, kind of heavy today, but uh, thank you for uh, kind, of, kind of digging in just a little bit um, and being able to take a look at, at uh, these things. Um, I think one of the things that's coming from the uh, Come Follow Me is a, is a push to say, study these things more deeply. Don't just read them in sequence, though there's a place for that. But study, and, and you come across the stuff and look stuff up and try and try and get additional study Bibles and understand what you're looking at. Um, when, I'm, when I'm looking at the church trying to get, make, make its way through the, the writings of Paul, it's like a foreign land. And we're still trying to figure out how to do that. And yet this is rich and deep. And these were very uh, powerful writers. And I, I pray that we can do that. And uh, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, next week we will uh, look at uh, the, the cleansing of the temple. And then into the, uh, the, the Last Supper. And, and the, the things that happened there. So, Okay.